You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host, Anne Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, an exploration of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine featuring key people on the ground in Ukraine and around the world. I am Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest is Yulia Timoshenko, a 24-year-old Ukrainian reporter, communications expert, and marketing executive. She reports for Ukrainer English and is a strategist for St. Javelin, the Canadian internet company that began with one meme and has now raised $2.5 million for various Ukrainian organizations. She's done an investigative report on Amnesty International's policies towards Russia and Ukraine, as well as fieldwork in Abu Dhabi in the Russian and Ukrainian diasporas. Yulia Timoshenko, welcome to Ukraine 242. Thank you so much for having me. You did quite a detailed report on Amnesty International and their position on Russia's invasion and war against Ukraine. Would you share some of that with us? I've looked up to Amnesty work and respected them a lot before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And I like their work on a lot of conflicts and issues in the world. So overall, I think like I want to recognize that they are an important organization. But then when it came to Ukraine specifically, I think they just faced the same kind of problem as a lot of international organizations essentially like met in Ukraine with not really understanding the context, not listening to local Ukrainians and trying to pretend like they know better and they can do their work without actually collaborating and working specifically with Ukrainian experts, activists, and even local amnesty office. And essentially what they did was they conducted some sort of analytical field work, as they said, to see essentially how Ukraine operates on the battlefield and how Ukrainian military uses their tactics, war tactics in the city. And they basically accused Ukrainians of deliberately putting civilians in danger by waging warfare inside the cities and sometimes stationing some of their military equipment near like civilian buildings and locations. And there was a lot of problems with that, not only because they didn't actually work with local experts to understand the reasoning behind it. They didn't like understand the context of the warfare in Ukraine, that that's actually battles that are being fought in the city. But also they deliberately just kind of ignored the rules of international humanitarian law under which if you don't have a better alternative and that civilians are not in that civilian building, the military of defending force actually has full right to use that location 
for their own needs. And I, I guess like for, for also for Ukrainians, like, you know, my dad was under occupation and he understood that, yes, because our village was literally a front line, basically, because on the other side there was Ukrainian army and on the other side there was a Russian army. And he was sitting in the cellar and he was perfectly understanding. He was like, yes, my house might be destroyed uh, because, you know, Ukrainian military also can miss. But I understand that there is no other way to like fight this because you don't fight in the field, in the forest. You literally fight in settlements, towns and cities. And when that report came out, there was a lot of criticism. Like Amnesty Ukrainian resigned because she felt like they weren't consulting and like were not really listened. And then the president of Amnesty International, Agnes Kalamar, she basically minimized the criticism by calling everybody bots and trolls and like basically gaslighting Ukrainians who had a very legitimate negative feedback to that report. And later, Amnesty International, they basically hired an independent commission to analyze their early report and see if there is anything that they could have done better as an organization or if there is actually things that they missed in their um, analysis of the situation. And basically, the independent commission found that their conclusions was not substantial enough and it sounded like they just tried to make like a bigger deal out of some things and they could have phrased things in a way that couldn't be as harmful because when this report was released, I immediately saw how Russian propaganda is going to spin it and actually use it to justify their indiscriminate attacks on civilian infrastructure all around Ukraine because they basically can fire missile anywhere and say like, well, we think that Ukrainian military was there. Well, we need to start with the fact that Russia has no right to fire missiles in the first place. And that's how it went. Basically, Russian media started citing the report. I think Russian delegation to the UN started covering up their war crimes by that report. So to me, whatever goal they had, maybe they had a goal to appear as impartial or pretend like they are unbiased and they like criticize and analyze all sides. It was so harmful because it also provided a legitimate almost like framework for the Russians to commit even more harm, more war crimes, and it put even more civilians in the harm's way. Because to me, as somebody who also studied social research and sociology specifically and did like field work, I think like do no harm is the best principle. And even if you feel like you can get some sort of right results or you feel like there's a need to publish something as an organization or as in the research, you also need to analyze what's going to happen when you publish that piece or how you word that because literally people's lives and people's well-being can be dependent on that. And that way, I think Amnesty International failed completely. And just from other interactions with some people who have worked for Amnesty, uh, some Ukrainians, and knowing how on the inside they also treated Ukrainians who tried to do something, who tried to provide support through Amnesty platform to Ukrainians, who tried to start initiatives. It literally felt like the leadership of Amnesty was not really keen on really being seen as like very supportive of Ukraine and their rhetoric of like, oh, Ukraine gets too much support and other conflicts not getting as much attention, so we're not going to even pay attention to Ukraine either. I think it says more about Amnesty itself than anything else. Wow. 
Has there been any change since those initial reports were released and since Ukraine and other countries have been pushing back on them? I think the main change is that they really hurt their only reputation and lost a lot of donors who were very disappointed with the quality of their work. They lost respect from a lot of Ukrainian activists. And although I know that a lot of people who work for Amnesty are great people and still do amazing work, I don't want to minimize that. But I don't think any Ukrainian activists or human rights organization or NGO is ever going to be working with Amnesty specifically because they lost the trust. Because for us, those kinds of mistakes, even if they want to call it mistakes, I don't think they actually really took responsibility. They communicated that they could have done some things better, but they didn't really take the responsibility that we wanted to see from them. Um, For us, it's not just, oh, you made the mistake, you know, next time you can take this lesson and be better. It literally could be the lives of our relatives, so ourselves, Again, like when the Russian army was entering my own town, my dad was telling me how it was indiscriminately shelling the entire village, burning down, I think, around 40 houses, destroying a very big historical church, which everything of that is like war crimes. And Amnesty decided to focus specifically on like cherry picking Ukrainian military strategy without even trying to work with the military organizations in Ukraine or work with activists to see why they might need to use civilian infrastructure in some cases to basically defend themselves. So for us, that kind of trust is non-existent anymore. And I don't think any self-respected organization or an activist will ever do anything with amnesty. And frankly, I don't know whether that trust can be rebuilt ever. Were your parents in Bucha or near Hostomel? Or somewhere else? No, no, no. That is northwest of Kiev. My parents were in the east of Kiev. So they were on the other side of the city, closer to Russia, actually. Russians were coming from the Russian territory because Hostomel and Bucha, Russians came from the Belarus territory. So my village was invaded on March 7th. That's when the Russians entered the village officially and it kind of became under Russian control up until the end of March when Russians were kicked out by Ukrainian armed forces. Have things been able to be rebuilt there to any extent? To some extent, yes. I think like a lot of just overall infrastructure is back because like even like the bridges around the village were destroyed. There was like so many things. It looks okay on the outside well, but still like a lot of people who completely lost their houses. I know that they weren't able to rebuild their homes yet. And a lot of people have to like live with relatives or friends or something. And obviously, I mean, some people were killed specifically by the Russian soldiers or wounded. And you can't really rebuild that. You live in Kiev. And I wonder if you could give us an idea of what that has been like recently. I am from Kiev region. Originally, I grew up in a small village outside of Kiev. I had to evacuate on February in February of 2022 um, to the western part of Ukraine. But then I returned at the beginning of last summer when the life started getting back to some sort of normal in the city that was 
basically under siege for a few weeks, but then the Ukrainian army liberated the territory around it and people started slowly coming back. So did I, my family uh, survived a few weeks under the Russian occupation and I'm very lucky and privileged to have them alive and well, only thanks to the Ukrainian armed forces and the defenders who liberated and defended Kyiv specifically. And right now I'm, yeah, I'm based there and the life is very bizarre in the sense that the city is almost back to almost every aspect that was there before the full-scale invasion. The only difference, I think, is the curfew because you need to be home by 12 a.m. and you cannot leave your house until 5 a.m. And... That doesn't really change my life specifically, but it's still something that you can feel that the restrictions are there because of security reasons. And I think the biggest impact on Kiev right now are obviously aerial strikes and missile strikes from Russia that have been happening almost every night and day, which are very disturbing. And specifically, I think, created in a way to terrorize people and to make them sleep deprived and very exhausted mentally from everything that's going on. Luckily, now that we have Patriot defense systems provided by, to us by the U.S., the interception rate of those missile and drone attacks is almost always 100%, but it doesn't guarantee that still like a piece of a rocket or missile will not like hit you if you stand close to the window or something. So a lot of people still taking shelter either in the hallway of your own apartment or building or in some sort of basement. But during night, obviously, that's very tricky. So like sometimes I have to sleep literally in the hallway when I hear um, explosions and missile flying. So whenever there is no air raid, then it's like a beautiful day outside. You can almost try to like forget the state in which we're living. Um, and it's a huge difference from what Kyiv was just a year ago after Russian attempt to take it and right now. But then during night or during the air raid, you still get reminded that Russia is still terrorizing us every moment and killing people every single day. So it is a very strange reality that I think is like somehow like almost impossible to comprehend. Are any of those missile strikes coming during daylight hours? Sometimes, sometimes, but I think I would say that 80% of them are during the night. And I think it's a very deliberate decision that they're taking to do it during the night because that way, even if they don't hit the targets, um, they still terrorize the population, making them more exhausted. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an emotional terror as well, as well as physical. So I think it's a very, very deliberate strategy to do them during the night. So even if patriots are taking out, say, most of the missiles successfully, this kind of terrorism is what they are able to perpetrate by striking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's never normal. And I think a lot of people got used to this point, and I think if if before February 2022, I could never imagine like a missile flying above my head, like that was something just um, completely bizarre to even think of. Right now, 
I am pretty, I wouldn't be astonished by that fact. It, it's a very, unfortunately, normal thing. But even though you understand that the probability of you being killed by a missile in Kyiv specifically, I'm not speaking about other cities because in other cities it's way higher, especially those near the front lines. But in Kyiv it's very low, but it's never zero. And whenever you hear a missile or a kamikaze drone flying above your building or you hear the interception happening somewhere close, you always kind of like think in the back of your mind, am I going to be lucky this time? Or maybe I, I am the next like casualty. And just the thought of that is sometimes very, very paralyzing, especially if you get woken up in the middle of the night. And it, for me personally, it always reminds me of the first ever night on February 24th, waking up at 5 a.m. and hearing those explosions and understanding that it's the bombing. And that probably was the most scariest moment of my life. Uh, right now I'm more used to, but I think like my brain can never disconnect those two. So I always think about that moment. How far away does Patriot interceptions of Russian missiles take place? So if Russia fires a missile, Patriot intercepts it. Where is that explosion in relation to you? How close is it? Well, first of all, I'm not like a military expert to speak on that. Second of all, I think we're actually not allowed to ah. speak on that, even if we do have information. I can just say that it's somewhere around, and uh, I think it, I will not be giving any new information if I say that they move it every night and every day. It never stays in the same place. But where it is exactly, nobody knows. And people who know are not supposed to share it. But you can feel it like every night now, you know, that they've been bombing. You could hear it sometimes like, oh, it sounds like it's closer or it's further. So yeah, so I think like the only thing that we know that it moves. If it's close enough to shake your windows or affect your hearing or if well, it's... Uh, yeah, no matter where it's located, I think the interception in the sky can still happen above your building. Right. And that's the recent casualties in May. Basically, they're from the debris that falls out because the rocket or the missile explodes in the sky and then parts of it can fall unfortunately, and if it's during the day, they may fall on people, or if it's even if it's during the night, like even the parts of a kamikaze drone can literally fly into your window wow. and basically kill you asleep, and it killed a 33-year-old woman like that. After hearing that story of a woman, they're literally being killed in her own bed from destroyed uh, kamikaze drone. Uh, after that, I started actually sleeping in the hallway, like further away from the windows during the air raids. So yes, it can. It can very much shake your windows. You can hear it very well. You can feel it. Every single explosion, if, even if it's far, it's almost always followed by vibration. So it's not like a firework, although it sounds similar to the firework, but it has that physical almost like impact that you can feel with your body. Do you know if people like yourself, people who are simply citizens trying to go about their daily lives, how are they getting help with trauma? 
Well, it really depends. I think every person in Ukraine at this point is like traumatized on some degree. And it really depends on how much. Like obviously trauma from just hearing missile attacks is nothing like actually trauma of probably losing somebody in the war or actually losing somebody to a missile attack. Yeah, I think like a lot of Ukrainians, they 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 always kind of try to minimize their trauma, unfortunately, because if you look around, you will ultimately find probably somebody who has it way worse than you. So I think that's why like a lot of Ukrainians are hesitant to even begin to speak about their own emotional state. So they don't perceive like they're like whining for no reason. And then just overall, the mental health conversations in Ukraine are not as widespread yet. And we don't even have enough mental health specialists to like help everybody to even help like direct victims or soldiers with PTSD. Like, and I'm not even talking about civilians, but I think people try to look out for each other, like support each other. I have great supportive friends. We all kind of like share how we feel, um, talk to each other and support each other as much as we can. I'm very lucky to have a therapist. I actually have a therapist from New York and she works with me for free. It's a therapist that I've had since my NYU times and I've been I've been working with her for three years now. And basically when the full-scale invasion started, she offered to work with me pro bono just as a way of helping Ukraine. And I'm very, very grateful to her because she helps me a lot to cope with everything that's going on. Is this someone that you're doing video conferences with that's in New York, or is this someone that's located in Ukraine? No, no, no. She's she's based in New York, and I've, I've been working with her online through Zoom, basically. I was in New York when we started working together, and our first session was to, supposed to be in person, but then COVID happened. So we've actually never seen each other live, but it doesn't even feel weird or anything. I feel like I'm very used to that online format. Our guest is Ukrainian reporter and marketer Yulia Timoshenko. I am Anne Levine from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us. You are a communications expert and a marketing expert for St. Javelin. Explain St. Javelin, please. It is an internet meme of basically an icon, a Mary holding a javelin, which is a defensive anti-tank missile launcher that is basically one of the best weapons to repel the tank attacks and a weapon that played a key role in defending cities like Kiev and other parts of Ukraine at the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And that sort of meme of a Mary holding a javelin was turned into a social enterprise by a Canadian former journalist, Christian Boris. In the beginning of actually February, even prior to the invasion, he set up a little like website where he sold stickers with St. Javelin and some other merch with the goal of donating the profits raised to Ukraine. And in a few months, it actually grew in a full-on you know, organization that works under the model of a social enterprise. Basically, we, we sell a lot of 
different merch and clothing and apparel. And we also build an amazing community of international supporters of Ukraine. And we have great informational, but also unique social media pages where we communicate about the events in Ukraine through the lens of humor, which is not always straightforward when you think about war and humor together, but it's a great coping mechanism, actually. So yeah, we've been able to donate more than two and a half million dollars to different Ukrainian organizations and initiatives from the sales of our products on our website. And we've also been able to do amazing work communication-wise and community-wise. It's a great place to work as well. I'm really happy because I'm able to feel useful in every aspect of what I do, I feel like I'm helping Ukraine. And that's the most important feeling for me. Let's say a year and four months or three months, St. Javelin has raised $2.5 million. Yeah, it donated $2.5 million to different Ukrainian organizations and efforts. So many of the memes and the images on the merch is clever. If people want to go see it, what is the address? Yeah, it's literally stjavelin.com website. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. For Twitter and Instagram, it's just stjavelin. You might need to spell the full name so it pops up, but those are like the key platforms. You can also find us on Reddit and YouTube as well. So yeah, on YouTube, St. Javelin Official, we have great informative but actually pretty funny content about the whole situation so check it out because i think it's a great way of communicating things in a non-traditional way what exactly do you do for saint javelin so yeah as you said i do communications and marketing but it functions like a startup where a lot of the times you might do like a bunch of different things that are beyond your key responsibilities but basically planning some content, thinking about different campaigns that we're doing, marketing new collections. Right now we're actually working in a very big collection made in Ukraine where our goal is basically to start making most of our stuff in Ukraine so we can also bring the economic benefit and support local manufacturers. And this is what we're trying to do right now. Uh, so planning every step communication-wise around those campaigns, also working a lot on creating some content whenever things happened around the topic of Ukraine and making sure that we also use our big social media platforms in a way that informs um, our international audience about what's going on in Ukraine and specifically about Ukraine, its culture and people. Yulia Timoshenko, where is the best place for someone to follow you and keep on top of what you're doing. Instagram is the platform where I spend the most time and efforts, but Twitter is also a great place. And it's at Yulia as Y-U-L-I-A underscore Timosha on Instagram, T-Y-M-O-S-H-A. And on Twitter, it's without underscore. One last small question. We play a song under the credits. What song would you like to play you and to represent this interview? I think it would be this Ukrainian band called The Hard Kiss. It's a Ukrainian band. And I thank you so much. I know you're incredibly busy. And so I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me and asking great questions. I hope you have a quiet night, a peaceful rest. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Good night.
The Lighthouse by Hard Kiss. Our thanks to Yulia Timoshenko. Visit saintjavelin.com to see her work. Editing, Ursula Rudenberg, Stephanie Schubert. Recording, Michael Levine. To see pictures of our guests and to access our complete library of past shows, go to ukraine242.com. I am Ann Levine, the host and producer of Ukraine 242 from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us. Until next week on Ukraine 242.